Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. No matter who we are, we are touched by food, shelter, and clothing. Of the three, perhaps clothing is the one we take most for granted. Unlike our food, we don't usually think about where it comes from. And unlike shelter, it's in abundance. And unlike these other necessities, the price keeps falling while the style keeps improving. It's almost too good to be true. And maybe it is. Maybe there's a darker side, a steeper price we pay for this proliferation of fashion. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Dana Thomas. Dana Thomas is the author of Gods and Kings and the New York Times bestseller, Deluxe. She began her career writing for the style section of the Washington Post and served as a cultural and fashion correspondent for Newsweek in Paris. She was the European editor for Condé Nast Portfolio, and her newest book is Fashionopolis, The Price of Fast Fashion and the Future of Clothes. It is my pleasure to welcome Dana Thomas back to this program. Dana, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Well, Anytime you want. I love speaking with you. Well, it's a delight to have you here. The business of fashion, what used to be called the garment business, has been around for a long time. I remember, even as a kid, racks of clothes going down the streets of the west side in New York. Talk a little bit about what's different. When did it change to the business that it is today? It changed to the business today about 30 years ago, though, mind you, this is how the business started 250 years ago in Manchester when Manchester was called Cottonopolis. And it remained that way until pretty much the 1930s when we had wonderful Florence Perkins as our labor secretary, the first woman and the longest serving secretary in the cabinet. And she ushered through many great reforms during the New Deal, including the Fair Labor Act and giving us things like the 40-hour work week and paid vacation. So because of her, we entered a golden age of manufacturing in America where you had garment rags reeling down the west side of New York City. But before that, we had sweatshops in New York City, just like we have sweatshops in Bangladesh. And there was a great crusader in the late 19th century named Florence Kelly, who introduced something called the white tag that was to show to be affixed to clothes that had not been made in sweatshops so consumers would know. It was basically like a good housekeeping seal of approval. We don't have that anymore. And we could surely use it because we just don't know. And what we have today is a proliferation of clothing made all over the world, manufactured inexpensively. In, in some cases, manufacturers looking for the least expensive place to manufacture it. Talk a little bit about that, the world today. Absolutely. You know, it, it really did shift after NAFTA. That was the turning point. And there are a lot of people and you know, economists and trade specialists who will tell you, no, no, it's not true. But, you know, you go and talk to the workers in the factories and they'll say, you know, before NAFTA I had a job and after NAFTA I didn't have a job. My town didn't have jobs. Our town went into a serious depression and, and recession. And, you know, we lost everything. So NAFTA was a turning point. It didn't, you know, the numbers didn't quite equal what Ross Perot suggested they would, but there was definitely that sucking sound of jobs in Mexico, as he described it. And then from Mexico, they went to the Far East. Um, today, our clothes are, it's a, it's a fractured supply chain that that it's all around the world. And, you know, even if it says it's made in Italy, it could have been made in Bangladesh and just had the button sewed on in Italy and it gets that label. It's a very opaque, opaque supply chain. And many companies don't even know where their clothes are made. 
as we've been as we witnessed when the Rana Plaza factory collapsed in five years ago, mm-hmm. and you know more than twelve hundred people were killed in this shoddy factory that had been thrown up and without adhering to building standards and zoning standards. And there were brands in there that said we had no idea our clothes were being made there or we never contracted those people to make there, that they'd been subcontracted and subcontracted and they'd lost track of where their clothes were being made. So if they don't know, how are we supposed to know? It's it's a very tricky business. And why should it matter to consumers today? Well, it should matter consumers. Well, with Rana Plaza, I mean, quite simply, you know, two weeks later, the clothes that those poor folks who were crushed in that building were sewing were on store store floors and you bought them and you had no idea that, you know, the next day that person was, you know, squashed underneath, you know, beams and cement or bedridden for life. So, you know, we should care because, you know, it's about humanity and the planet that the impact of of the fashion industry is enormous on the environment. We produce a hundred billion garments a year. We only buy 80 billion, that leaves 20 billion left over that are going where, okay? Just stop and think for a minute, where are they going? They're getting burned, they're getting shredded, they're getting thrown in landfill. Our landfills are heaving with clothes, clothes that are made of polyester, which is essentially plastic and does not biodegrade. We have now, We have discovered in the last few years that polyester emits microfibers into our water system and is now being eaten by fish, which we eat. It's now being found in the ice of Antarctica. And last week I read it's raining plastic microfibers in the Rockies. So you can have an organic garden in Boulder, Colorado, but it's being rain, it's being covered in plastic rain. So, you know, consumers should care because we have too many clothes. They're being made in horrible conditions, not always, but a lot by people who can't afford to house and clothe and feed their families it's because it's below a living wage. We think we're giving them good jobs. They are not good jobs. I've been there and visited them. The economic impact is immeasurable. We need to change our ways as consumers, and we need to basically bully companies into greener practices. Of course, that also, some would argue, means more expensive clothing than we have now. But clothing has never been so cheap. We don't realize how cheap it is. I kept hearing this and reading this when I was working on the book. Clothes have never been so cheap. And I was like, what does this mean? And then I had this aha moment where it was it just became very clear. I was reading an article in The New Yorker from 1940 by this wonderful writer named Lois Long about Hattie Carnegie, the marvelous retailer of New York in the 1920s and 30s. Her clients were the super rich women like Mrs. Harrison Williams, who was the wife of the richest man in America, or Joan Crawford, you know, that sort of select few. And they were buying, you know, remakes of Paris originals in her shop, authorized remakes. That's what how it was done then. They bought the patterns and then they made them in, in the shop. Those women were paying between 800 and $3,000 for those gowns, exactly what you'd pay today at Prada, Gucci, and Chanel. So, okay, right. Those prices of clothes have stayed the same. But then during the height of the Depression, when, you know, the stock market crashed, Hattie Carnegie came up with the idea of coming out with a middle market consumer line to keep the money coming in because many of her big, her wealthy clients lost their fortunes. It was called Spectator Sport. Raymond Chandler, the writer, 
called it the secretary special, which I think really describes it wonderfully well. So, you know, a secretary could go in and buy it and wear, you know, a good, this lovely little suit from Hattie Carnegie and dress it up with a brooch or a you know, or wear it with a sweater one day and a blouse with another. And you know how much that suit cost? About nineteen ninety nine. Exactly what we're paying today in H and M or Topshop or Zara. Not adjusted for inflation prices, not, you know, real prices then versus now, la 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 la. Exactly the same price. When the price of beet, ground beef has gone up how much? When the cost of a taxi cab ride has gone up, how much? When the cost of a gallon of gasoline has gone up, how much? We're paying the same price for clothes. So that gives you an idea of how, while we say we can't afford it or the good clothes are expensive, in fact, we're paying so below, below market we don't realize it. And we buy 10 of them instead of one of them. Maybe we need to go back to the other model where we spend $200 on one item, then $20 for 10 on each of 10 items. Talk a little bit about that, because that is an idea that comes into its own fashion every once in a while, that people should spend more money on better quality and, and buy less items. And it always seems to be a fad that lasts for a while, and then it seems to fade away. Well, I think we need to do it now simply because we are a wash in clothes. We just have no place to put the, all the leftover clothes. When we pay $200 for something, be it a garment, be it anything, we are investing in it, and we're investing not just money, but also emotion. We're caring for it. We're less cavalier with it. When we pay 20 bucks for it, we're like, uh, I spilled some mustard on it or some sunscreen on it, and I can't get it out, whatever. I'm just going to toss it. As opposed to, you know, it costs more to take it to the dry cleaners and get it clean than it would to replace it. I'll just throw it away and buy another one. We Instead of actually investing in it and cherishing it and and saying, oh, I should take it to the dry cleaners and get it clean because it costs 200 bucks and I don't want to spend another 200 bucks replacing it. There's that idea that they're throwaway clothes. And throwaway clothes is a horrible idea, just like throwaway anything is a horrible idea because the thrown away goes somewhere. It doesn't just evaporate. You know, it's like, you know, I've always laughed at smokers who fling cigarettes out the window as if it just like disappears into the, into the, you know, to the air. And then you're standing two floors below and it lands at your feet and you're like, yo, there's somebody down here. So it's the same thing with clothes. You throw it in the trash, it goes somewhere. And we have to think, you know, realize that it's going into landfills that are getting too full and it's, it's polyester that doesn't break down. It doesn't biodegrade. So it lasts forever because polyester is essentially plastic and, and then it breaks down or the chemicals go into our water table and poison the water table. You know, there's a, there's a much bigger impact than we realize when we just toss that garment because it costs nothing and it would cost more to clean it than it would to replace it. How much of this is driven by fashion and style specifically that, that things go out of style they become less trendy, therefore you want to get rid of them and buy something new and, and more current. Well, some of this is driven by the fast fashion companies and by the fashion industry itself, which is on a speedy, speedy cycle that's just going so fast. I mean, every time you blink, there's another fashion week. And, you know, things are coming and going. And, they're, you know, I wrote a book before this called Gods and Kings about Alexander McQueen and John Galliano. John Galliano, when he started his company, and he, he, he put out two collections a year. By the time he left Christian Dior, sort of 15 or 20 years later, he was overseeing 32 collections a year. So that just shows you like how much the speed has come up and like the offerings, how we just have to have new, 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 new. 
And that's because of the Zara model, which was always dropping new items on the, on the store floor every week to beg consumers in to buy more. Before, we used to go to stores four or five times a year. And Zara, at Zara, because of the changing of, the, of what's on the floor, the inventory and how it's being updated all the time, they average 17 times a year. But that, therefore, we're burning through styles really quickly and, you know, and trends really quickly. And then the influencers, especially on Instagram, are speeding this up because they only wear things once or twice and then they 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 don't then it's not seen again and they're like okay that's out and this is in and that's out and this is in and that's out and this is in so it's all going just really really fast it's like being on a on a merry-go-round that's just speeding around so fast it's making us dizzy and flinging people off along the way and what i love is, is my two favorite influencers right now are Kate Middleton and Meghan Markle because they've introduced what I'm calling the royal rewear, where they just keep trotting out the same clothes over and over again for super high-profile events. And the fashion chroniclers of the royals note this. Like Kate has this Alexander McQueen pine green coat that she's worn several times to several major events. You know, she'll wear it to the Trooping of the Color, then she'll wear it to the Queen's birthday, and then she'll wear it to a wedding. And she wears it with a brooch. She changes it for a different hat. It might come out at a state visit. She wears it just from the car to the, you, you see it all the time. And what she's telling us is that I paid a lot for this outfit, this coat. I love this coat. This coat looks good on me. Why should I toss it? I'm going to keep wearing it because I'm investing emotion. I'm cherishing this coat. And you know, it's okay to do that. It's sexy to do that. It's, it's admirable to do that. And I'm going to do it. And I'm, I'm someone who can afford to change my clothes with every time I step out the door. How much of the change that we're seeing is generational? A lot of it is generational. The the millennials are pushing this because they are so um, they are so green oriented. They understand the impact of, of climate change. They they're worried. They're worried. Let's be frank. They're worried, and so they're they really you know whether it's farm to table movement, whether it's recycling, whether you know the the complete demonization of the plastic straw that happened in the last <laughs> 18 months or two years you know the millennials are a force and they're changing things for the good and they're definitely behind a lot of the change that's coming which is great they're demanding it of companies they're demanding companies to be more environmentally uh, aware and more um, concerned about human rights what is the nexus, if any, between these changes and the fa- in the, what's going on with clothes and the fashion industry and the corresponding changes we see taking place in the retail landscape? Well, the retail landscape is really interesting. You know, depart- malls are dying left and right. There's actually a crazy YouTube channel um, called the Death Mall Tour, I think, where you can, like, see this guy going and visiting all these malls, these abandoned malls throughout the United States. Um, And that's in part because now we order everything online, and not just Amazon, but online from everywhere. This has allowed startups, though, to decentralize from the New York, Paris, Milan, grid, you know, big cities, Chicago, L.A., and be based anywhere, which means that their their 
pr- the price for running their company, their overhead, is much lower. I wrote about one in the book in Florence, Alabama, and it costs so much less to run the company and pay everyone in Florence. They have they live a slower better life in Florence. It's not so frantic. They don't spend half their day sitting in the subway or in traffic. And and they can ship anywhere. So you can have direct to consumer. You can order your clothes on the website. They're made to order and then they're shipped directly to the consumer. It's actually kind of going back to the old catalog method of, of shopping that was in the ninth that began in the nineteenth century. And um and this is I think changing the landscape of retail and as a result also changing the industry because it's a cleaner way to do business. There's zero waste when you're making to order. And um, and there's, you know, you don't have this huge carbon footprint from shipping things around the world and you don't have, you know, the economies of scale where you're making 100 just to sell 80. And and things are made well and they're and they last longer and they're really well worn. And, and and appreciated and cherished. One of the things that we're starting to see, which is we're really just at the, at the beginning of it, is the automation in, in manufacturing of clothing. Talk about that and what you see ahead. Well, there's this great innovation that came out of Atlanta called SoBots. And it was invented by the folks who also brought you the driving, the self-driving car. And it's actually the Department of Defense that's come up with it. Um, and SoBots are these groovy machines that will sew clothes for you. Now you say, oh, this is taking away jobs. But in fact, it's creating better jobs and it's bringing domestic manufacturing back to the United States because you can outfit these abandoned factories from the post-NAFTA era with this cool state-of-the-art machinery that's you know computer-run and computer-generated. And the folks who are working aren't standing on a, an assembly line and inhaling fibers, you know, the normal ray sort of factory line that where that was so unhealthy. They're in clean rooms and they're running them on computers and it's all silent and, and it has air systems and whether it's an electronic, you know, a state of the art cotton mill or it's the sobots. And people run the sobots and when a sobot breaks, people have to fix the sobots. But the sobots are the ones doing the repetitive sewing as opposed to some poor chap who's sitting at a machine or a woman sitting at a machine just running seams all day long and getting repetitive motion in- injuries. So they're they're good jobs and they're they're streamlining the business. They're making it more efficient. There's less waste. There's fewer mistakes um, because the machines are far more accurate. And they can also be programmed to produce to order, and um, and they're creating they're creating jobs in places where there haven't been jobs in ages, and and replace and and new jobs in other places where they've been filthy sweatshop jobs, and these are clean, safe jobs. Of course, they also have the ability to produce more clothes faster and get more clothes on the mar- in the market. I know there is there is the potential for awful bastardization where you know I I sort of feel like George Jetson or no what is it that that scene in Lucy where she's I love Lucy with the chocolates that go faster by faster 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 and so <laughs> I hope it doesn't get to that point um and that's where you know humans step in you know are we going to be are we going to maintain our integrity or are we going to be overtaken by greed and 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 envy and and all those bad things so i don't know if sobots are 
the solution, but they certainly feel like it from a human rights and pollution standard. And finally, we're just about out of time. Are there leaders in the fashion industry right now, in the manufacturing industry, that are aware of these things and and really taking steps to, to deal with them in the way we're talking about? Yes. One of my favorites is Stella McCartney, and she's pushing the whole industry to be more sustainably aware. Um, you know, Stella is the daughter of Paul McCartney, so she's, you know, basically the daughter of one of the most famous hippies that ever lived. And she famously grew up in a household that was vegetarian and very, you know, conscious about the environment. And so when she started her company about 20 years ago, she said, you know, no leather, no fur. And she was starting her company with Gucci Group, which was, you know, Gucci was a leather goods company. So they they all scratched their head and said, what? What do you mean no leather? And she's like, there is no leather at my company. So she pushed the industry to come up with alternatives, and she supported them, too. One of the initiatives she she started, she pushed through, was she said no, when she realized how bad PVC is, which is, you know, uh, the short for a very long word. I can't pronounce it, but it's basically plastic. Um she said, okay, we're not using PVC and in in, it's just toxic and we're not using it in our, our clothes anymore. So that limited her to one sequin. There was one sequin that was not PVC, uh, did, that did not contain PVC. And she pushed the entire group of Caring, which it was later called, the Gucci group renamed to Caring, to ban PVC too. Well, that pushed the industry to come up with alternatives to PVC and sequins so that there were more sequins because the whole industry was like, wow, we just lost an entire luxury fashion group. They're not buying sequins. And that was a big market. She did the same with Rayon. She, um, she partnered with a group called Canopy, which is protects endangered forests and they're out of Canada. And she pushed, you know, together they pushed the Rayon industry to stop felling trees in endangered forests like the Amazon and, and rainforests in Indonesia. Nine-tenths of the industry was foresting from these, these beautiful forests. And, and she said, we're not going to source from you as long as you do that. And she, pushed other, she got other brands to join her in this fight, and they changed the industry, and now they don't source from those, those forests. So she, she has great conviction. She has the power of fame and money behind her to stick to that conviction. She says, she's the first to say, you know, tomorrow if I go under, I'll be okay. But it also emboldens her to really go out there and help startups that are coming up with alternatives like Modern Meadow, which is growing biofabricated fabric that looks, that is like leather, that's coated DNA, so it is like leather, but it's not. But it's grown in a lab, and it, it isn't killing animals. And so she'll be able to use leather finally in her in her clothes, in her shoes, and her leather goods, without killing animals. And it's a cleaner, safer way of producing leather. It also is zero waste because you grow the shape and size you need. So she's really a leader in this, and she's really pushed forward. She's recently left Caring and joined LVMH, the other big luxury fashion group, and she's going to do the same there. So basically, basically, she's muscling the entire luxury fashion industry to get more green, and I, I applaud her for that. Dana Thomas. The book is Fashionopolis, The Price of Fast Fashion and the Future of Clothes. Dana, I thank you so much for spending time with us. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.